Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 28th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim gives us part three of the history of the Toy Story Mania attraction. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that any salad can be a Caesar salad if you stab it often enough. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Okay. Why is it if you held a gun to my head, I would not eat an anchovy? But on the other hand, anchovy paste, Caesar salad, I'm perfectly fine with. That's a contradiction, right? I actually got used to it when I was researching the um, Britain's Best Day Out book that I wrote mm-hmm. with Bob uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago, about 10 years ago. And when I was at Alton Towers, mm-hmm. one of the few things that I could get in the middle of the day to eat mm-hmm. in the hotel was a Caesar salad with anchovies. And I was so hungry mm-hmm. at the time that I, would, I think I was training for a marathon too. So I was like, you know, every calorie counts okay. that I, was, I would actually eat the anchovies and now I'm used to it. Yeah. But it's, a, mm-hmm. it's, definitely, it's definitely an acquired taste. Okay. Strange thing is if I was given the opportunity to be out in California and do the grunion run thing, I'm there. I'd have handfuls of little fish. I just wouldn't know what to do with them. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Ryan Shrout, Nate Becker, Mickey G66, and Lizanne Piling, and longtime subscribers, Sean Moore 33, Ian Tewksbury, Mark Fluff Daddy Jackson, and Matt 67 Martin. Jim, we all know that Disney's Fort Wilderness Campground used to have an actual steam train running through it. But did you know that these are the folks who tried to recreate an actual buffalo stampede as part of Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary plans? Then they found out how delicate a Winnebago actually is, and that's why bison burgers are on special at Geyser Point from now until Christmas. (laughs) True story, Jim. True story. Oh, that sounds like it would be hard to get out of the grill. (laughs) Actually, they do have bison burger there. It's it's not bad. Okay, okay. I, I, I just like I, the phrase "how delicate a Winnebago really is." I think that's, I, I, I have to <laughs> that's a nice turn yes. of phrase right there. <laughs> I enjoy that myself. So, all right, Jim, let's do the news, mm. folks. The Disney Dish news is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news I think coming out this week was the Disney Enchantment projection show coming to the magic kingdom so i gotta give credit to mike over at blogmickey.com who had this first over a month ago not only is this a new fireworks show but it's bringing uh projection technology down main street so and we sort of saw a preview of this with disneyland forever we did we did what do you think Mm -hmm. i always enjoyed that show i mean it was fascinating to stand in the street there on Main Street and have a show play out the entire length of the street. Yeah. Thankfully, the COVID restrictions will be well in the background at that point because a lot of people are going to want us standing in the street to see this one. I think this is good for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One is the castle projection show works best if you're right in front of the castle, but obviously mm-hmm. there's a limit to the number of people who can mm-hmm. be right in front of the castle. By bringing it down Main Street, mm-hmm. you get many more people who can have a good look at projection technology. The other thing I've heard here, Jim, is Mm -hmm. seasonal overlays, like the Osborne family spectacle of lights. Have you seen, ah, damn it. Okay, there was was test footage. I, uh, maybe we're not supposed to see it. And maybe I'm not supposed to talk about it. So just everyone forget that I said anything about it. Anyway. Okay. But seasonal overlays, Jim, Mm -hmm. it's a possibility. It could happen. Who knows? Whatever they say, seasonal (laughs) overlays, I suddenly picture Charlie Brown standing in front of Lucy with the football. This has been talked about so many times. I know, but this gives them a, this gives them a package that they could load and unload. I mean, with the projection show, you could turn that on and off within Mm -hmm. the week between Halloween and the Christmas show and the Christmas parties starting, right? Okay. Yeah, and you could right. you could enhance parades. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff that you can do. I think I think it's a, a fantastic addition, and you got to give Disney credit for keeping this reasonably quiet. I agree, I agree. But at the same time, I am just going to look under Bob JPEG's new management team for the name Lucy Van Pelt. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, Jim. Here's my question for you, though. Mm-hmm. Wishes, the show prior to Happily Ever After, ran 14 years, 2003 to 2017. Happily runs. Four years with a year off. Mm-hmm. Is there a story there? 
Well, again, to circle back to Mr. Chapek, this is the guy who, 2018, merged Disney Consumer Products with Disney Parks and Resorts to get our Disney Parks Experience and Products division. Bob wants the show that's in the nighttime Kiss Goodnight show in the most popular park in Florida to be more reflective of today's Disney company, as opposed to, you know, a show that was put together four years ago. Wow. I mean, Illuminations ran, what, 20 years, something like that, you know, depending on its various incarnations. Phantasmic, Phantasmic has been running since, I believe, the Pleistocene era? I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. I have to, have to go back and look at the rock strata that, strata that they, uh, they carved the seats out of, but that would explain the cave painting sequence. Okay, <laughs> exactly, yes. All right. exactly. All right. You know, but for a show to run four years with a year off because of COVID, that just seems like there's something there, right? Anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's counter to what Disney has done for the past two decades. But yeah. let's also be honest. You know, you're kind of looking over your shoulder at what those other guys down the street are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe just sort of like, hey, let's get a new show in here. Okay. You know. All right. So we'll see what happens there. I'm super excited. And that, uh, that begins October 1st, right? Yep. Also, we uh, got this week confirmation that Harmonious begins October 1st. We've kind of known this for years that, mm -hmm. uh, that October 1st would be the date. It's, uh, it's nice to hear it, though. My thing now is there's so much stuff planned for October 1st. Mm -hmm. Jim, would you put the over-under date on which Disney raises ticket prices at oh. before or after October 1st? It'll be painfully close, but it'll be before. Yeah, I'm thinking like September 30th. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that Disney mentioned that we were getting for the 50th, a four-park lighting package called Beacons of Light. And that was interesting because it's separate than the stuff that we're getting for Harmonious or for the new Magic Kingdom show. So hmm. we've got sparkles of pixie dust at Cinderella Castle in the Magic Kingdom. We've got lights now on Spaceship Earth. In Epcot, we've got something at Tower of Terror in Hollywood Studios, and we've got a new lighting package for Tree of Life at Animal Kingdom. You did see the announcement yesterday about the Tower of Terror movie that Scarlett Johansson is producing with Disney? I saw that. She's producing. Is she going to be in it? That's uh, for negotiation. The other thing that's frankly interesting about this project, script is written by Josh Cooley, who was the director of Toy Story 4 for Pixar. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what that means further on down the line when it comes to overlays and that sort of thing. I mean, I have heard some interesting things about perhaps Disney is getting tired of paying CBS for the rights to use Twilight Zone. So we'll have to wait and see what happens here. So Disney's already done a Tower of Terror movie, right? Steve mm -hmm. Gutenberg's magnum opus. But yes. I, mm -hmm. is this going to be a reboot of that? Or is this a completely new thing? Completely new thing. Okay. In talking with folks at the studio, it, it, it wasn't a question of like the Jungle Cruise, uh, Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt film that's coming out at the end of July. They legitimately see that as their next Pirates. This, on the other hand, is, is kind of a way to, to keep Scarlett Johansson under the Disney umbrella. Right. And at the same time, you know, that this is a company that really likes to do theme park based things and redos. In fact, just yesterday, the live action Snow White that's coming. It's like, okay. Remember when they used to make original movies? So. I, I, I'm not going to comment on that because I just had a conversation with someone at Pixar. Okay. <laughs> Jim, speaking of the Animal Kingdom, how'd you like that for a segue, by the way? Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking of the Animal Kingdom, uh, Disney also announced a new show called Kite Tales. So it looks like those uh, Epcot Forever jet skis, which can't be running because mm -hmm. of the harmonious barges. Looks like those are zipping over to the animal kingdom. That they are. And they've talked about how this is a kite-based show, but it's a sit-down attraction. It's going to be in the, the Discovery River Amphitheater, which was built for Rivers of Lights. Yep. And it's going to happen during the day. So, ooh. That's what I thought. Like, okay, there's no shade. It's concrete. Mm -hmm. It's Florida. Yep. It's mm -hmm. summer. Mm -hmm. Honestly, God, I think here's what they should do. They mm -hmm. should carve small furrows into the concrete seats and then have George Foreman Grill sponsor <laughs> Disney Kite Tales. Is anyone from Disney listening when I talk on the show? Uh, I've been in there when I saw Rivers of Light and it was, was after dark and those things 
were still hot from the, the heat of the day. And oh, yeah. just the idea of, of going there at, say, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. My understanding that they're going to, to do the show, the plan is at least twice a day, maybe three times a day. Oh, I didn't know day. that. Okay. I figured it was a couple times a day, yeah. Yeah. Took a mirror on wonderful kites and lots of activity out in the water and that sort of thing. But still, getting people to show up early and then sit down there waiting for the show to begin. Yeah. It could be it could be their way of selling more drinks, more sodas. <laughs> or Bactine, you know. Exactly. Bactine. exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the uh, the sound that jet skis make, though, might be a little intrusive in that particular. I don't know how that's going to go over with uh, sort of the background music of, of, of Asia. It's not very uh, Zen meditation. Yeah. We're going to have to see what happens there. All right, Jim, let's talk about the rope drop procedure which has changed yet again at the Magic Kingdom. So something interesting has been happening at mm-hmm. the Magic Kingdom this week. Last week, we talked about how at Epcot, they had started holding people in Future World Plaza until 30 minutes before the park had opened and then releasing everyone in there. What's the interesting thing that's happened at the Magic Kingdom this week is that they're holding everyone in the Central Hub and along Main Street until exactly park opening. So if the park opens at 8, they release you at 8 o'clock instead of 7.30. Um, to hmm. get on the rides. And that's new. That is the old, old, old rope drop process. Yeah. Like we're not getting the park early at all. Hmm. So what is that about? I, th- I think, again, there, this, uh, so imagine you're an offsite guest once mm-hmm. uh, early theme park entry begins. This, is, this mm-hmm. will be your process. Mm-hmm. So it could be that they're testing that, too. Mm, okay. Well, that runs in parallel to what you were saying uh, just on the last show about Epcot. So interesting. Okay. Also, um, we did some uh, rider counts over at Rise of the Resistance. So um, it looks like it's running at around Mm pre-pandemic levels of operation right now. We counted around 1,535 people per hour going Mm -hmm. through the ride. Uh, It's about 15 boarding groups an hour, too. So roughly 100 people per boarding group um, Mm -hmm. and maybe half that in Disneyland because it looks like they're getting through twice the number of boarding groups. So that's super interesting. Also, while we were in the parks, we noticed that FastPass kiosks have been mm-hmm. uncovered in the Magic Kingdom. And our friend Diane mm-hmm. writes in that her previously booked fast passes have been redisplaying in her My Disney Experience account. Ooh. That's okay. Interesting. Also, right. if, if, uh, here's another clue. If you look at the, um, the latest code within mm-hmm. the MDE, there's this um, thing called Disney Access Plus, mm-hmm. which might be the new name of the thing that replaces FastPass Plus. So I don't think Disney's going to call... In, in Walt Disney World. I'm not entirely sure that they're mm. going to call the paid version of FastPass, FastPass Plus, because no, people no. will immediately say, why are you charging for something that was once free? Are you Peloton? No, you are not. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for yes. that. Okay. Look, at, look okay. at me, just up on the current news. Anyway. There we go. So yeah. I think they're going to say Disney Access Plus, mm-hmm. and that might be the overarching name of the thing we'll say. <sighs> okay. Well, right. uh, thanks to Diane for, for, for sharing that info. Uh, last bit of news, uh, and I forgot to mention this last week. The park's mm. best hot dogs have returned to Liberty Square in the Magic Kingdom. You can now buy them at the Liberty Square Market. They're not Ooh. the uh, grilled hot dogs that they used to be, but they are encased in a steam bun. They're more like a ballpark hot dog. They're mm-hmm. uh, way better than what you used to be able to get at Casey's Corner when it was open. So, uh, And if any medical professionals want to turn their heads away right now, I will tell you, Jim, that my first lunch there was hot dog with mustard. Mm-hmm. Mickey pretzel with cheese and I took the extra cheese and I put it on the hot dog and I had a Coke. <laughs> this part of the new segment is brought to you by antacids. <laughs> I probably suck. Holy cow. Okay. I, I can hear the arteries hardening from here. It's amazing that I, the number of gym membership uh, emails that I get as soon as this show is over every Monday. Anyway. Go figure. All right, folks, uh, that's going to do it for the news. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about the new design of the contemporary rooms, which just came out, but Jim and I haven't had a time to look at it. So okay. uh, let's move on to listener questions real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one from Kelly. A friend just sent me a text with the attached picture showing an unmarked bus that picked them up from Epcot to head back to the contemporary. The driver told them this is a courtesy VIP coach. My friend described it as straight up like a greyhound. I find it pretty unlikely that Disney ran out of buses. Maybe they ran out of drivers. Interesting stuff for sure. Also, my friend did verify that she arrived back at the Contemporary and was not driven to her death in a strange unmarked bus. All right. Well, that's a win. Um, so here's the thing, Jim. They, um, yep. they are definitely not out of buses. And to mm. Kelly's suspicion, 
they're out of bus mm-hmm. drivers. I think we've yeah. talked about this either you and I have talked about it. I don't know if it was mm-hmm. on the show or not, but they're importing bus drivers from out of state now and putting them up on property just to have them drive around. Yeah. It's yeah. getting staffing up in the central Florida market is a challenge. Yep. And the fact that they have to reach out of state for bus drivers right now, yep. but that that's the reality of the situation right now. Yeah. I mean, lots of places uh, need bus drivers. I mean, imagine like regular transportation companies need bus drivers too. And all the, you know, the private events that are happening around the country again, now they're looking for bus drivers yep. as well. So yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of competition. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's an email from Todd who says, my daughter's a cast member at the studios. She's been with Disney for three years now. She's been telling me about a dilemma that all of the frontline cast are worrying about. With the real estate craziness going on in Florida, many cast members that are renting are being notified that there'll be rent increases upon lease renewal. My daughter's rent will be going up $300 per month. She lives about 10 miles from the Magic Kingdom. I've been tracking rent on Zillow and have seen that one-bedroom apartments that were renting for $1,100 per month in April are now $1,500 per month. My question is this. What happens to the frontline cast members who won't qualify because of their income to get in the apartments? Will Disney have trouble getting people to come in as cast members if they can't afford housing? My daughter has as many roommates as her lease already allows to lower the costs, but now it's getting really tight. Yes, this is super interesting. Uh, And this, I think, is is, is part of the bigger problem. So I did some research. I went back and forth with Todd on this. But one of the big problems that you have, right, is Mm -hmm. these cast members get priced out of housing around Lake Buena Vista, Mm -hmm. right? And they have to drive farther and farther out. Are you going to drive, you know, an hour each way for a fourteen dollar an hour job when there are other jobs available? I think this is part of the problem that uh, that Disney's facing. So I actually did some some research on this, and, and Todd's daughter is actually in a three bedroom apartment, but I was looking at two bedroom apartments just to mm-hmm. sort of that, that was sort of like the middle sweet spot between one bedroom and three bedroom. So according to Zillow in Orlando for two bedroom two bath apartments, there are currently forty four zero of them available at fourteen hundred dollars or less per month. And you're looking at a 40 minute to an hour drive each way. That tells you how tight the apartment market is in central Florida right now. In fact, there are only 85 open apartments at $1,600 or less. And some of those are in East Kissimmee. Now you might say she's one person, 85 is, is plenty of supply. But remember, Disney World employs tens of thousands of people. So yeah. 85 apartments is basically zero, right? Mm-hmm. You really have to get to around $2,100 per month. Mm-hmm. to where you have substantial abil- availability. And even if you split four ways, so a two-bedroom, that means that you're sharing a bedroom with someone, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure that many 23-year-olds want to do that, but okay, fair enough. Okay. That's mm-hmm. still $550 a month at $14 an hour. So if you're making $14 an hour at Disney, I actually did the math, it's $29,000 mm-hmm. a year after federal taxes, Social Security, and Medicare, you're bringing home around $2,000 per month. Right. So that almost certainly rules you out of having your own one-bedroom apartment anywhere around Lake Buena Vista because those things are running $1,300 per month and no one's going to be spending 65% of their take-home income on housing. That's crazy, right? Yeah, no, so let's say you've got a couple of roommates. Um, after rent, you're, le- uh, you're making, and you're making $2,000 per month. After rent at $550 a month, you're left with $1,450 per month. The good news is with federal subsidies and ACA bronze insurance plan is free, but then you still have to worry about like things like transportation, insurance, gas, and whatnot. So I... Uh, and I didn't know this. Did you know that the average cost of a used car in the United States is not $25,000? $25,000 for a used car. So much of the fleet disappeared. I remember the financial correction of 2008 where they were buying older cars and actually cubing them, crushing them. Yep. Just yeah, just part, part of the buyback. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and those cars would be 13, 14 years old now. No, no, no. I get that. But oh, those were used cars. They're probably 20 years old at that point. Yeah. But yeah, you know, the ripple effect that caused, yeah. that we're still feeling today. So Also, the, uh, the average age of a used car is now 12 years old, which is kind of interesting. So I did some math here. I uh, checked with a couple of places and I looked at Geico. So let's say mm-hmm. Todd's daughter uh, got her $25,000 used car, but got it at 40% off. Mm-hmm. Her monthly payment is still $270 per month, assuming no down payment. So that means she has just under $1,200 left. $80 of that goes to car insurance, assuming she has no tickets. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Um, so she's down to $1,100 per month. Utilities and whatnot are probably another $100 per month. So she's down to $1,000 or basically half of her income left and she hasn't bought food yet. So yeah, this is how, Jim, this is how, uh, you know, people can barely scrape by mm-hmm. on $14 an hour in central Florida. And you'd have to have three roommates in a two bedroom house. 
I'm old enough to remember when you'd go to the parks and all of the positions were filled by 40 hour a week employees who'd yeah. worked for Disney for decades and loved their job because it had the best benefits and it paid the best in the area. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of like, something's got to be done to turn this around. Well, this is why it's interesting. You know, Universal is paying a dollar an hour more, right? Mm -hmm. Which works out to be you know, $2,000 a year and $160 uh, you know, a month more. You think about that though, when you're, when you've got, after food, when you've got around five or six hundred dollars a month left, an extra hundred and sixty dollars mm -hmm. seems like seems like a really good deal. I I, I can understand that. Yeah. Well, and let's also remember that Universal Orlando is actually just in April of this this year. They picked the developer for their affordable housing complex, the thing that they're they're basically building across from Epic uh, Universe. So, oh, right, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's going to bring a ton of jobs too. Yeah. I think Disney's got to be casting an eye to, to what's going on down the road between the pay thing and the housing thing and think, okay. Yeah, what do we have to do here? They, they are offering $1,000 signing bonuses now for kitchen staff. Have you seen that? Yes, yes. You know, but that also comes on the back of guests when they go to the theme park or stay at the resorts. They like to eat. You know, go yeah. figure. So. Yeah, and Universal's running into some issues there too with, uh, you know, 40-minute waits for pretzels and whatnot. Anyway. Oh, no, no, no doubt. Our next email is from Greg in the UK. It says, we, my wife and two children, are planning a California road trip next summer in August of 2022 with the main purpose of visiting relatives and doing some sightseeing. We're looking to visit Disneyland for two days at the end of the trip, which will be a surprise for the children. At that point, our children will be eight, Evie, and nearly five, Henry. I've been to Disneyland twice, 2004 and 2013, in California Adventure once, 2013, but both as an adult without children. So my first question is, do you think in late August we'll be able to have a fulfilling experience in the parks in two days? I would say yes. I mean, I think you could do almost all of DCA mm -hmm. in one day. And you could definitely do the Disneyland highlights mm -hmm. in one day. And there I would concentrate sort of on the classic attractions. Haunted Mansion, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Matterhorn. You know, it's a small world, things like that. What would, you, uh, what would you see in Disneyland, Jim? Given the ages of your kids, I mean, you're going to be spending a lot of time in, in Fantasyland. Fantasyland. Oh, yeah. Mr. Toad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Get to, to experience something that you can't do it at another park. Please, it's, it's August in Southern California. I'm hoping you're at either a Disneyland Resort Hotel or you're somewhere close by on Harbor or Catella to, to go back to the pool, all right? Oh, Just good point. Yeah, yeah. The, the heat in August will probably be more than you're used to in the UK. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Beyond that, take advantage of the fact that the park will no doubt be open from like 8 a.m. till midnight or if not one. I hope, so, I hope everything will be back to normal then. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, Greg writes, in February of 2024, planning a two-week trip to Walt Disney World, staying on property with a 14-day ticket. However, we're also planning on a day at a water park, Universal, and Kennedy Space Center to go along with the rest of the days, so we'll probably end up with two full days in each of the four parks. By this time, the children will be nine and six. I last visited Walt Disney World in 1994. Ooh. Wow. So a lot <laughs> will have changed. There you go. So here's some questions. Uh, will mm. two days in each park give us a less frantic chance to experience a lot of what is on offer? Yes. That's exactly what I would recommend. Also, that'll give you time to take breaks in the middle of the day. Yep. Mm -hmm. Is there mileage in making sure we do some attractions that are similar in Disneyland to relieve some pressure on this trip? Or is this missing the point that a lot of these attractions have regret appeal and we may want to ride them again anyhow, plus some are subtly different? Can you think, Jim, of any ride that you wouldn't ride again in Disney World because you experienced it in Disneyland? Circling back to Evie and Henry, I yeah. mean, it's it's the notion of, you know, remember how kids will watch the same movie 3,000 times? I mean, the yep. notion of, but well, we, we went on, you know, Snow White's Enchanted Adventure in Disneyland. Why would you want to do, well, actually, that ride doesn't exist yeah, another in Disney World anymore. Yeah, Winnie yeah. the Pooh, right? Yeah, Winnie the Pooh, yeah. But if your kids are vocal at all, this really isn't an option. You know, it's Outside like, of Dumbo, I really yeah. can't think of, and, you know, the teacups. I really can't think of anything... That is, in maybe Buzz Lightyear, you know, so similar in Toy Story Mania, so yeah. similar in the parks that yeah, there's relatively few attractions that are so similar in the parks that I would skip them. I, mm. I you know, I was going to say if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean in Disneyland, mm -hmm. don't do the one in Walt Disney World because it's basically the uh, the shortened version of it. Mm. But eh, even then, it's it's worth seeing. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Next question is when is the best time to actually start planning properly? I've already started looking at what days to go based on historic crowd data. My wife thinks I'm mad. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
three years out is a little early. Yeah, I would say you know a year out, and at that point, mm-hmm. uh, you know a year out, you will know basically what hotels are going to be open and available and things like that, and would have a better sense of of crowd stuff there. Uh, the next question is: Is it worth using fast passes for things like Fantasmic if we went in the evening of a rest day? Assuming fast passes come back, and that's the only thing you need it for in on that particular day. Yeah, it makes sense. In fact, it's an easy way to get reserve sitting at Fantasmic. The other option assuming it comes back as well, is something like a dinner package that typically goes along with the nighttime shows. Mm-hmm. You have to eat dinner anyway. Um, yep. And if you want to bop into the park for a meal, even for lunch, uh, and then do the fantastic package, that's another way of doing it. How will the rollout of Genie affect the way touring plans works? That's a great question. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have to see, and hopefully we'll know. We should know here in the next couple of months what features are and pricing and things like that. But for right now, I think uh, even Disney can't tell you how it's, mm-hmm. uh, how it's exactly going to work. And it may change by 2024 too, so we'll see. All right, cool. But uh, but Greg, keep in touch with your uh, planning questions on that. All right, here's a question from John, and I love this question. As it currently stands, Mickey Mouse will finally enter the public domain as of January 1st, 2024, which is about two and a half years out. While that may seem a long way off, I can also imagine a scenario for Disney in which that date is terrifyingly close. I doubt Disney will want this to happen. So my question is, how is Disney preparing for losing its hold on Mickey Mouse? Wait. Jim, is the answer anything other than a lot of money <laughs> being donated well, to political campaigns? Disney did back in the day the the Sunny Bono yeah that was the last which, extension yeah 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 that only got them to January twenty first January first of twenty twenty four. You've expressed your love of the Paul Ruddish Mickey Mouse shorts. Just a number of times you've quoted Potato Land. Those were launched back in June of 2013. And I've heard folks within the company argue that this was a deliberate effort on Disney's part to, it's like, look, you know, this is a new iteration of a classic character. So we would argue that as the copyright for Mickey Mouse, the specific Mickey Mouse, pie-eyed mouse that Walt introduced in 1928 is sliding. On the other hand, this one from that was introduced in 2013, an entirely different animal. And that a nuanced look at copyright would suggest that, yes, okay, you want to go pie-eyed Mickey? That's yours. This one is ours. And if you, you do something that's too close to this one, the might of the Disney legal department will fall on you like wolves. <laughs> Just in the past six months or so, we've had Warner Brothers do a brand new feature film with the CG versions of not only Tom and Jerry, but later next month, we're going to see a brand new version of Space Jam that features the Looney Tune characters. Right. All of these major corporations are doing interesting new things, whether it's changing the look, taking a 2D traditionally animated character and doing the CG or that sort of thing. But sort of positioning, I mean, these mega corporations that now own all of these things, the notion of approaching copyright to the effect of, yes, old version of character is out of copyright. New version of character is not. And let's see the outside operators try to use these characters where a, a Disney can take you into court and argue, yes, you know, you're using Mickey and yes, his copyright is available. But on the other hand, you're, you're too close to what we're doing with the character now. And with Disney having the larger pile of money when it comes to lawyers, you can yeah. effectively tie people up in court for decades. I would be surprised if Mickey Mouse actually enters the public domain. I think that to your point, the thing that would enter the public domain would be the Steamboat Willie version. There you go. Of Mickey Mouse, right? Which is super primitive, right? And people would recognize it as Mickey Mouse, but it would be a primitive version of it. But if you take Paul Ruddish's version of Mickey Mouse and put it next to Steamboat Willie, there's enough commonality, but enough difference that really is going to make things difficult for somebody who's trying to use that character after it's slid into the public domain. And I think think that might be the argument that Disney makes Mm -hmm. that- yeah, this particular character, this you know, this iteration of Mickey Mouse from 1928 will enter the public domain. But it's so close to what we're that we're doing now that brand confusion is unavoidable, right? There you go. And because it's unavoidable, you know, you shouldn't allow it to happen. I, but I think here's the interesting thing. So it comes up in in 2024, which means uh, President Biden would have to sign any legislation mm-hmm. that would extend the the copyright. And there is a midterm election coming up in 2022. I think we should start asking this question. To political candidates, like, are you in favor of Mickey Mouse going into the public domain? And if not, why not? 
Like what, what's for me, the interesting distinction is, is if Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn mm-hmm. can enter the public domain, why other than, other than the fact that it makes Disney a lot of money, like mm-hmm. what's the principle behind which Mickey Mouse doesn't enter the public domain, but other characters do, right? Again, if it, uh, setting aside the pile of money thing. By the way, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, Adam Ruins Everything. <laughs> I've heard of it, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful show that explores all of these commonly held beliefs that are wrong. And Adam actually does a wonderful episode where he talks about how the Walt Disney Company, because of the Sonny Bono law, has so screwed up the notion of copyright. And the very thing about there are these ghost copyrights where the effect of people are afraid to do things with certain characters because, frankly, there's there's a question about, well, is that in the public domain? Is that not in the public domain? And which... Perhaps explains why we're getting a Snow White live action reboot. That's right. That's coming up too, right? 1937. It's close enough. Yep. All right. Here's a question from Dan. Next March, I will have the pleasure of chaperoning a high school band trip to Disney World. Assuming Rise of the Resistance is still running the same way next March, what are the strategies you might use to try and get a boarding group for approximately 40 people? Would you have 40 different people all trying to get a boarding group for everyone? That would seem the easiest, but can the system handle a group of 40? Dan, I, I don't think that would be my strategy because you have to select everyone in your friends and family list, and that by itself would take more seconds than you have. So for reference right now, at 7 a.m., all of the boarding groups are generally gone in nine seconds or less, and generally they're gone within seven seconds. You can't select, you can't go through all the steps and select 40 people from your uh, friends and family list inside of seven seconds. It's just not possible. What I would do is is this. I would have... 10 groups of four or eight groups of five mm-hmm. or, you know, 13 groups of three and one individual loner out there. No, but, uh, you know, have, have a, a fairly large number of small people, small group people, small people group um, together and have as many of them try for boarding groups as possible. And then I would go to either group sales or someone at uh, guest relations for anybody that didn't get in and say, okay, you know, I brought a group of 40 people here for my band trip. 32 of us got boarding groups. The other eight didn't. What can you do for us? Or can you help us out here? And Disney should be able to work with you on that. That's exactly what I would do. One other wrinkle, and I just literally learned about this from a friend who lives down in Orlando. Seven o'clock in the morning, boarding groups go clean, nine seconds. But the interesting thing is that at one o'clock in the afternoon, supposedly they throw open the boarding group again. That, that at this point, they have a better handle on what's going on for the day, whether there have been delays or suddenly that they have more availability opening up yeah. during the day. So, And the one, the one o'clock group stays open much longer, like many minutes. Then the key is to be in a part of the park where the Wi-Fi signal is ridiculously strong. Cause they, you know, Over by you, Disney Junior, yeah. Yes, yes, that's it exactly. I've also heard this kind of a sweet spot between Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster. I guess there's an ice, the ice cream stand there is a really good oh, place uh, to take. KRNR, is that the, uh, yeah, I okay. believe so. But yeah, just keep that in your back pocket as well, that if, if group sales or, you know, there's no luck there, that then you still have folks who are trying to get on this thing. Oh yeah, if you're over by, uh, if you're over by that part of Rock and Roller Coaster, that could be the same Wi-Fi as over by Animation Courtyard. Yeah, okay, that would make but, sense. That could be. You don't want to be as on Hollywood Boulevard because there's too many mm-hmm. people on there. Trust me, you get know, 40 kids at a bed. You don't want 24 of them to get on the ride and the other 16 to be grousing on the bus ride back. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think guest relations would help them out. Well, here's hoping. All right. Last question is from Lisa, who says, uh, I thought you might be interested in my very short story about meeting Walt Disney when I was a small child. My parents lived in Southern California, and they adopted me from South Korea in 1959. The same year, they took me to Disneyland for the first time. And until we moved away in 1970, we made yearly or twice yearly trips on one of those trips, my mom, my friend Karen, and I went into an attraction that we had never seen before. Great moments with Mr. Lincoln. We may have been the only people in the theater besides a man and a woman who were sitting together. When the show was over, my mom recognized that the band was Walt Disney. She tore a page from our ticket book and told me to go ask for his autograph. Karen and I walked up to him and he signed the page. I don't know the exact date of this encounter, but because the attraction was new to us, because Disney was present, I'm guessing it was around the time of its opening in 1965. As to the identity of the woman, I have no idea. But when I've told the story, I've always said it was a blonde woman. And I secretly like to think that it was Mary Blair. That is a fantastic story. 
when I actually reached out to Lisa, and it turns out there's actually potential validity in her Mary Blair theory, because Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln opens July 18th, 1965. Her family's visit would have to have been late July or August. And we can narrow it even further, because it would have had to have been a Saturday or Sunday, because what Walt would typically do is after he finishes work week, uh, Friday nights he'd drive down to Disneyland, and then he'd basically set up shop in the the, the Disney family apartment above the firehouse in, in okay. Town Square. So 1964 New York World's Fair is still going on at this time. In fact, Disney actually built two versions of Lincoln. So one could open at Disneyland summer of 65 before the fair closed. Oh, nice. But on the other hand, Small World was just a one-off and Mary had worked on that, but they had already started construction on the show building. And in fact, they broke ground uh, at the back of Fantasyland in June of 65. So given that Walt would spend his weekends down at the park, just walking around, looking for things to plus or checking on projects, it's entirely plausible that, you know, Walt reached out to me and said, hey, I'm going to Disneyland this weekend. Do you want to come with me and check out the small world construction site? Because we still have to talk about what we're doing with the exterior of this building. And to give you some idea how loose leaf that project was, there's this famous story of Mary is in the model shop mm-hmm. and she's working on the exterior of the Disneyland version of a small world. And she goes to clear off her workspace, which is now covered with the miniature trees that they had envisioned planting in front of small world. And so Mary, just because she's in you know, a clear off her workspace, temporarily puts the trees on the top of the model for Disneyland's version of Small World. It's at this exact moment that Walt walks into the model shop, looks at it and goes, hey, that's cool. Let's do that with the real building. And it's like, what? The, the trees at the top of the <laughs> I just, building? I need a room for my coffee cup. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it exactly. It's, to this day, that's why there are trees at the top of that building. So that was done on the fly in the fall of 65. So as I was telling Lisa, it's like, yeah, you're probably right. It was probably Mary and Walt was probably showing off hey look at the new york show we got this one here now let's go look at the you know where we're going to put the other new york show yeah this is a great story thanks to lisa for sharing it all right folks we're going to take a quick commercial break when we come back jim continues the history of toy story mania and we're back all right jim when we left off on the last episode we had Mm -hmm. talked about the paul bunyan buffeteria which uh would serve enormous portions of food to people that they could split between them because the chefs were used to cooking for Paul Bunyan. And by the way, I got a number of emails from people who sent in photos of themselves eating truly gargantuan pieces <laughs> pieces of food, like like disturbingly large blueberry muffins, like oy, oy. Yeah. and steaks and and other things. It was it was really astounding what what this country can produce when it puts its mind to it. What is the Clyban rule? Never eat anything bigger than your head? You say that, but I've had pastries in Animal Kingdom that were bigger than my head. And I don't think that rule completely applies when you're on vacation. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, there's a, I think there's an addendum. A there we go. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Anyway. Go. All right. So, so we left off there, right? So mm-hmm. uh, this was like, what, the fall of 55? Yeah. Okay. And Walt's trying to like... Please, Mickey Mouse fans. The show had just debuted in, in, in the fall on, on ABC. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a weekly strip running, running Monday through Friday. And people are showing up at Disneyland. Like, Where's Mickey Mouse? Where's Mickey, Mickey Mouse? Mouse. Yeah. And again, as we mentioned, you know, the, he had previously toyed with the idea of building Mickey Mouse headquarters out on uh, Tom Sawyer's Island. But that wasn't going to fly because you have to drain the Rizzo America to do that. Likewise, you can't borrow the costumes from Ice Capades anymore because Ice Capades is on the road with its Disney costumes. Right. So now it's all about getting workable versions of the character costumes for the Disney park that Walt himself has built. And this takes years. I mean, there's four years of trial and error, you know, trying to find that sweet spot where you had a costume that had a great likeness of the character, but at the same time was comfortable for the cast member to wear and still had good sight lines. 
And Walt initially assigns John Hench to the project, and John, in turn, ropes in Disney Studios' costume department. These folks are used to making things that look good in front of a camera rather than something practical for a teenager to wear in, <laughs> when they're working a shift in a hot you know, Southern California theme park. You can look now, Google Disneyland character costumes from 59, 58, Oof, 60. We've done this. It's nightmare fuel. It's not just nightmare fuel. These things were cruel, Len. I mean, for take for example, if you can find the, the outfits for the original set of Three Little Pigs, the heads were made out of rebar. What? Seriously, you know, the, the stuff that they actually sculpted to make Splash Mountain out of and then sprayed with gunite. Each of these head pieces weighed 70 pounds a piece. The poor cast members would go out and play the pigs in the park and would get severe neck and back aches just a few minutes after being on stage. I'm looking at these. These are massive costumes. Yeah. <laughs> just spraying them with gunite. So you've got chicken wire over rebar sprayed <laughs> yeah, with gunite. Yeah. No, no, it's just ridiculous so anyway walt immediately realized that john means well but he needs help on this project so he ropes in veteran disney animator bill justice to get some other ideas on the table for the character costumes and justice recalled in his 1992 uh memoir justice for disney walt once told me other places have thrill rides and bands and trains but we have our characters disney then went on to say bill Always remember that we don't want to torture the people who are wearing these character costumes. Keep in mind the cast members inside of these things have to be as comfortable as possible. So always try to use the lightest weight material when building these things and make sure that the character costumes have as much ventilation as possible. Mm. And the nice thing is with Walt, his first concern was the safety and comfort of his Disneyland cast members. His second concern was the look of each individual costume, making sure that the character likeness was as accurate as possible. So. It takes six years from the opening of Disneyland to finally get. Wow. But by the summer of 61, Disneyland Park now finally has a set, a dedicated set of 37 character costumes. Now, mind you, they made three copies of each costume lens. So there was one could be in for cleaning, one mm -hmm. could be in for repair, and then, mm -hmm. but there'd still be one costume available for a cast member to, you know, put on and go out and interact with guests or be part of the parade. So 37 is not a multiple of three. It was all like an extra Mickey Mouse costume just in case. Actually, it's three times 37. So what are they doing? Gricking the math there, 111? Oh, sorry. So that, okay, sorry. Yeah, so 30, 111 okay. costumes. Okay. Wow. So okay. average cost of producing one of these things was $50,000. See, teenagers who are putting on these outfits are reminded what you wear now costs roughly 10 times what your parents' home cost. All right. So, you know, just be careful out there. But Walt put so much time, effort, and money in the creation of these character costumes that he insists as they're arriving at his family fun park that they be promoted like they're a new ride or show at Disneyland. Right. So summer of 61, you open a paper in Los Angeles and there's a full page ad that reads, we're waiting to meet you at Disney. New fun for 61, 37 of your favorite Disney characters in person. In the same window of time, we get the Fantasy in the Sky fireworks uh, becomes a nightly's uh, offering during the summer. This is also the time when they completed the extension of the monorail to the Disneyland hotel. So Ooh, okay. today it's a transportation system, but yep. it's a monorail now extended to the Disneyland hotel. Now travel twice as far at twice the speed in the newly extended Disneyland monorail. Now two and a half miles of heart pounding thrills to the Disneyland <laughs> hotel. <and back. laughs> the monorail. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a different age land. Yeah, so. Things were simpler back then, Jim. The monorail is thrill ride. I mean, it's a, it's an attraction, no doubt. We, yeah, we've yeah, talked about this before, but yeah, but a thrill sorta, ride, I'm not eh. sure. All right. Okay. So anyway, Walt now has his dedicated characters in the park, which include okay. Mickey Mouse. But the interesting thing, he's, he's still getting comments from guests and yet to the effect of, well, wait a minute, Mr. Toad's got his own ride. So does Dumbo, so does Snow White and Peter Pan. Why doesn't Mickey have his own ride at Disneyland? And Walt starts to give this idea some thought. And so valid point. September of 62, he's sitting down with Fletcher Markle, who's a Canadian journalist. And Walt starts to talk about this idea he's developing, which is going to take a Disney short from the 30s, The Orphan Benefit. Actually, uh, that one went, a black and white version of the story went out into theaters August of 34. Seven years later, studio revisits the story, redoes it in color. What Walt decides he wants to do at Disneyland is build a, a cartoonish take on a vaudeville theater. 
And the idea is visitors to his family fun park would be seated in the orchestra section. But as they turned around and looked up, the mezzanine and the balcony would be filled with tunes, particularly mechanical tune figures. Okay. And then the curtain would open, and there on stage, you had mechanical ver- versions of Mickey, Donald, Goofy, Clara Cluck, and Horace Horsecollar, who would sing and perform magic tricks. And as each of these numbers would end, the tunes in the balcony would applaud or boo or you know throw things at the stage. It's like Mickey's Philharmonic meets Muppets. There you go. That's All it right. exactly. Okay. Sounds like a fun idea. Problem is, this is literally the infancy of audio animatronics. I mean, oh, these weren't going to be live performers. These were going to be animatronic. Animatronics. And it's fall of 62. We're still nine months out from the Tiki Room opening. It will, will be another 10 months beyond that before uh, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Magic Skyway, uh, Small The U.S. government hasn't declassified enough military technology no, that's for exactly. this to happen yet. <laughs> okay. We haven't, we haven't even built the missiles. On that's right. You know, just, you know, <laughs> when are you going to get law? We're still getting, get that Polaris missiles technology. So yeah, no, that's it. Exactly. And for WDI, what Walt was asking for that, not only the animatronics on stage, but you know, the, 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 the characters up in the balcony. I mean, this was just, you know, the imaginary equivalent of putting a man on the moon, you know, just yeah. sort of, there were so many technological break- breakthroughs that would have to, uh, you know, to happen before this would go forward. And so Walt dies in December of 66. Right. And the folks who were left behind, you know, longtime executives like Card Walker and Dick Irvine, they want to honor Walt's legacy, you know, continue with the ideas he's left behind. But at the same time, Card and Dick want to be practical. So as the orphans benefit show idea moves through Wed's development process, the idea of the balcony and mezzanine levels of the Ovalvo Theater filled with robotic Disney characters, that falls by the wayside. And in its place rises the Mickey Mouse Review, which has Mickey as the, the maestro of an animatronic orchestra, where you've got uh, you know King Louie from The Jungle Book playing timpani, and mm-hmm. well, title character from Winnie the Pooh is playing a kazoo. As all of these animatronic versions of well-known characters played down in the pit, up on stage, the stars of some of the studio's better-known short subjects and feature films, Snow White, Cinderella, uh, Three Little Pigs, they appear in brief musical numbers. As, as animatronics. As animatronics. But, okay. but right. this is put into development at the same time another very ambitious audio-animatronic show is put into works, and that's the Hall of Presidents. When you're putting together a show about a bunch of stuffy old white guys, audio animatronics from the late 60s, early 70s, very capable of very limited movement. I mean, to be fair, James Buchanan was also capable of very limited movement. (laughs) Well, no, that's it exactly. You know, (laughs) and you know, I mean, just I say this is a stuffy old white man, it's a perfect medium for for, (laughs) people aren't going to notice a a single thing different. (laughs) No, that's it exactly. Whereas if you're recreating cartoon characters, Who, you know, squash and stretch and, uh, yeah, you know, do all this it, athletic yeah. stuff. Animatronics is the exact wrong medium. And yeah. this is why Magic Kingdom opens at the Walt Disney World Resort October of 71. Hall of Presidents is is acclaimed almost immediately as a technological marvel. Whereas Mickey Mouse Review is like, eh, that's cute. It's, yeah. it's something you want to see once. So that's why literally less than nine months into its run, at the Fantasyland Theater, Mickey Mouse Review closes September 14th, 1980, gets packed up, shipped off to Japan, where it then becomes an opening day attraction at that theme park, you know, opening in April of 83. But this doesn't stop people from asking, where's the Mickey ride? So, you know, but the Imagine is now like, okay, so we learned our lesson. Don't want to do Mickey in a sit-down show just to see a version of Mickey whose feet are nailed to the floor. Right. So they begin to draw up the ideas like, okay, a ride-through, you know, where you quickly see the character. So 70s and 80s, we, we get a couple of different concepts going forward. We get Mickey's Madhouse, which was a tribute to the black and white Mickey shorts of the 30s, and this was going to be a combination dark ride and old-fashioned carnival funhouse. There was then Circus Mickey, where Mickey was supposed to be the ringmaster of this three-ring circus that featured dozens of Disney characters. This one was was pretty ambitious, Len. It was supposed to be something along the size and scale of Pirates of the Caribbean. Wow. Then there was Mickey's Movie Land. This, they actually brought Ward Kimball out of retirement to design this thing, and it was supposed to be a, a ride-through that explained the filmmaking process. And then, 
we get Mickey's PhilharMagic, you know, yep. which opens to the Magic Kingdom in October of 2003 and with clones of this 3D movie eventually in Hong Kong, Disneyland Paris, Tokyo, and, and California Adventure. Well, Mickey's name is part of the title of PhilharMagic. This is really Donald Duck it's Show. It's Donald Duck Show, yeah. Yeah. And I know right now there's a whole bunch of folks that are, are yelling at their laptops or iPhones going, well, what about Mickey's Runaway Railway? And it's like, well, yeah, that opened in March of last year, great acclaim, only to close 10 days later after the pandemic and after the, the entire Walt Disney World Resort got shut for a number of months. The Imagineer that was originally road hurt on this project, the recently retired Kevin Rafferty, spent a good chunk of the early 2000s working in an entirely different Mickey Mouse-themed ride-through attraction. Hmm. This one was supposed to make use of those pull-string cannons that guests use when they're visiting Disney Quest in Orlando, Chicago, when they did that Pirates of the Caribbean Battle for the Buccaneer Gold thing. And they were going to marry that with a ride-through shooting gallery. So at this time, was it was it a physical shooting gallery, or was it virtual, or was it laser-based, like uh, Buzz Lightyear? If you, you look at Toy Story Midway Mania, this was the setup. You know, you had your pull string cannons, you rolled through environments that would have some physical props, but 90% of it would drop you in front of a giant screen and you'd be firing at targets and Mickey, Donald, Goofy would be running around and don't shoot at us. But here's the thing. Management had signed off on the idea. They had agreed that this would be part of an expansion of Paradise Pier at California Adventure. A budget and construction timetable was in the works when in January of 2006, the Walt Disney Company announces that it is acquiring Pixar Animation Studios for $7.4 billion. Aha, and all of a sudden it's like we just bought this very hot animation company. We'll always have Mickey Mouse, but let's, uh, let's do something with Pixar. All right. That pretty much sums up what happened, Lennon. On the next and final installment of the series, we'll talk about how they took all the work that had been done on Mickey's Midway Mania and reworked that to be a Toy Story thing, which, by the way, not to, to, to bring these things full circle, that was also supposed to have seasonal overlays. You know, that remember when that was going to have a Halloween themed shooting game and yeah, a Christmas and themed shooting moved game? moved on, yeah. Yeah. So again, Len, I just want to explain why why my heart is broken. And <laughs> <laughs> that's one reason, right? Right there. There we go. There we go. So, all right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of Discovery Island in Walt Disney World. On next week's show, we're going to finish up that history of Toy Story Mania, and you can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len at Touring Plans. Com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be sharing his recipe for sumac rubbed lamb with minty artichokes at the 2021 Castroville Food and Wine Artichoke Festival starting Saturday, July 24th at 10 a.m. at the Monterey County Fairgrounds in beautiful downtown Monterey, California. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>